Welcome back to Echoes Down the Road, a podcast put on for you by the band West of House. In today's episode, the sixth episode of season two, we're going to be breaking down the song Beautiful Distraction, track five off of the album Drown the Wind. Join me, Tommy, and Eric as we break down the history of the song, its origins, and how we built it up to what it is today on the album Drown the Wind. So stay tuned and hope you enjoy the ride. Welcome back, Westies. It is time for episode six of Echoes Down the Road. As always, I'm your sonic tour guide. This is Eric. And this is Bobby, the stunt guitarist and mixing engineer. And this is Tommy, the sit-in drummer. Who? Who? Yeah, the sit-in drummer. I don't know where the I other guy went. I think we got someone else on the, on the line, Bobby. I'm, I don't recognize his voice. Are we getting hacked right now? Is this, is this how it starts? We must be. Could be. Tommy, you say. Yes. I, I vaguely recall a guy named Tommy who was booked on the last like four episodes and didn't show I up. I know, man. Life. Tommy. Like, I had a life event like a month ago. I don't know if you guys heard. It's just been crazy ever since. That was the, uh, I think we referred to that life event in episode one. Uh, so you did hear. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you want to tell the people about that? Oh uh, yeah. I got married. Before we jump into that. You know, you guys at home, you don't have Skype, but all we see is a big green foam mic in front of Tommy's face, which he's not actually talking into. So who knows what that's going to sound like, but <laughs> there you go. Why don't you tell us about this life event, Tommy? Yeah. So I decided to get married on the 23rd of October, which was amazing and fantastic. And Whee! thank you. Hey, Some of the West of, West of House showed up, most of them, and we did an impromptu Concert? Did you mention that too, or am I throwing out new info? Well, you would know if you had showed up to the other episodes. <laughs> no, we didn't actually talk about it. We said we were going to in episode one, but this is the first time we've talked about it. We've been waiting for you to come back from your Hobbit home or wherever know, you've right? been. It's been a beautiful distraction, isn't that right? Hey. Oh, I see what you did there. He worked it in. <laughs> you know that was fun. It was fun playing that. We didn't really get a chance to talk about, it, but Bobby was there. Lance was there, you know, Tommy was there physically. I don't know how, how mentally stable he was on that day. There was a lot going on, but that was a good time. I had a blast for sure. Yeah, um, it was good for sure. I had a lot of people pull me aside and say, wow, you guys are really good. It's too bad you didn't get to play more. And I didn't disagree. Well, and fun fact that that was the first time we ever played together. Well, for, with a West of house incarnation, because Tommy <laughs> and I, of course, played together. Many, yeah. many times. What did we do? Yeah. We did Fallen, mm-hmm. Fallen and Moving Shadows, Entwined, and the first time, right? Yep. Yep, that yep. was it. Well, we did that one more. Good. We did two from each. Uh, what was the yeah, other? Yeah. I, well, that's why I said four songs. Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't hear four. And then there's also Chasing After Memories for your for your lovely first dance. That was right. That was right. I, I requested Eric seeing Chasing After Memories. For our first dance, and he did so live to tracks, which was awesome. And it it was also Bobby and Lance's first dance, if I recall correctly. It was uh, the first of <laughs> what I hope to be many, and I'm a little sad that Lance isn't here, so I'm just going to make fun of him for the rest of the episode. Yeah, I, I don't know. Tommy, you should probably take that personally. Maybe that's why he didn't show up. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> you, you come back, he leaves. I mean, is it impossible to get you two guys in the same virtual room? What's, what's going on with that? I don't know, man. He's he's a weird, you know, bass players, four strings. I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, he's not here to defend himself, so so that's what he gets. Now, one thing before we kind of jump in the show proper, 
Since you've been married, how many times has your wife said, shut up, Tommy? She hasn't said that yet, but she's yet. said she wanted a divorce twice already. So, But I think it's probably <laughs> from me trying to be funny and not succeeding more than really anything. Doesn't really want a divorce, but... She's stuck with you. We can at least turn off your, your sound. <laughs> I don't know. She She's a saint of a woman, man. The patience of a saint. Yeah, she's a, she's a great lady and uh, does have a lot of patience to put up with my awkwardness. I'm not an easy person to date. I don't do it very well. I'm not good at it. So hopefully, or luckily, she saw something in me and put up with that until I got to the point where I'm not so awkward anymore. That's probably a... Uh... There's a season three episode out there where we just bring her on and let her, you know, talk about you. I imagine that would probably be our funniest episode. She'll she'll leave you after she meets us and gets to know us a little better. That's for sure. No. I, the first time the first time she says "shut up, Tommy," I want you to text me and tell me immediately because we want okay. to we want to mark down that occasion. Yeah, I'm sure that that day as, will as stars aligning and comedy rising up. Tommy, congratulations, man, and thanks for having us out there. It was a blast. Um, Eric, what are we doing today? What are we talking about? Well, you know what? Let's uh, let's start off with something fun. Oh. That's how we do it, people. We got the music. We got the bumper. We got the... So what is there? Is there a sound for that, you know, when, when you open a can? I, not that I'm aware of. I've always called it the... The I don't know if it has an actual name. Is that with a CH? Yeah, like I, I just kind of call it the K or something like that. It, I think a TCH. It's it's such a beautiful sound. It's glorious. But you know, you know what the sound means, people. It means that I'm drinking something. So, and today we are looking at the crisp by Six Point. And we've talked about Six Point before in this podcast. I think we had a. Oh, we did resin, which is their double IPA. The crisp is a pilsner. It's a little light since we're recording while the sun's out. I intend to lighten it up a little bit. This is 5.4 ABV, 44 IBU. So there's a there's a little of bitterness there, but it is refreshing and light and just kind of the perfect beer in an afternoon. Let's give it a little sip. Yeah, that's good. That's the kind of thing where it, it's a hockey beer. You know, this is the beer you drink after you play a nice hour of hockey. All right, so at this time, people, why don't you give us a little pause, go over to where you listen to streaming music, and give Beautiful Distraction a little spin. You got about five and a half, almost six minutes, longest song on the album, and well worth it. We don't waste a single note. So give that a listen and come right back. So there you go. Now, now this is this is a very interesting song, and it it has something about it that no other song from West of House has. Uh, do either of you know off the top of your head what that is? I think I know, but I'm going to let Tommy take a guess first. I think it has all the parts to a song. I don't know what it's missing, or it has that the others don't. It has drums, so that's really all I care about. It has age, Tommy. Age. It has aged like a fine wine. This song was written in 2005. Wow. What is that? That is, that is 16, 16 years? 16 years. So Beautiful Distraction is 16 years old. And that's, uh, I mean, we had Moving Shadows, which was about five years at the time when we recorded it. And Voyeuristic Symphony was written the same day as Moving Shadows. But Distraction, that was written before West of House, before The Mad Ones. And interestingly enough, 
It was the first song that I wrote after we were in God Complex, Tommy. Wow. Yeah, that was a while ago. And then there was a little God Complex rehash at the end of Entwined, but this is a full song. Yeah, it's a full song. So after God Complex, we we didn't break up. Tommy and I didn't break up. We were still, you know, joined together in unholy matrimony. Uh, but we lost a bass player, and back then we didn't have any, really the internet to go help find one. And it, we just kind of went in different directions. But I took a couple years off, about a year and a half, almost two years, before I wrote anything again. I just, I don't know, the, the well was very dry at the time. And this song was a very conscious attempt to sit down and start writing again, especially being not even having a band at the time, which was really rare for me. I'd always had a band to write songs for. So what was weird was kind of the stylistic direction that it took. It was a complete shift from what God Complex sounded like, and you guys have heard some of those songs uh, over the past season. And it was a shift in a different direction. And we actually have uh, that 2005 demo that I wrote. So let's play a little of that right now. So there you go. And, you know, one thing uh, that that kind of stands out is there's not a lot different, you know. I, I mean, obviously, there's a lot better production or orchestration on the one that we did for Drown the Wind. But this one, the foundation is, it's kind of there. You know, it's always interesting to me to hear the evolution of a song like that, especially one that has age like that, you know, in this case, 15 years, because you can kind of hear... I, I like kind of tracing the lineage of a song, whether it's, you know, maybe the structure was entirely there, but you changed a couple words or you went a completely different direction in the instrumentation. It's always kind of fun to trace that sort of lineage back. So that was interesting. Yeah. You always have songs. I mean, songs change, you know, as years go by, especially when you play them live, songs really take on kind of a different monster. Uh, but this one for being as old as it was, no major changes whatsoever. I don't even think there's one lyric change since 2005, which kind of blows my mind that I was happy with it. Now, West of House wasn't the first time that I resurrected this song. In 2013, I put out a solo album and I wanted to redo Beautiful Distraction. So my brother-in-law played with it. Rest in peace, Brian. We love you. Uh, a few other friends from some different projects came together and we put together this version and... 
Let's give that one a listen. All right, so what are we thinking about that one? Yeah, that was that was cool. Um, I believe I might have heard this back then. Like you say, we kind of have been in touch since the beginning of the millennia, which makes it sound a lot longer than it is. And um, no, it, it was a long time, dude. I know it feels right? like forever. <laughs> Free children, PC. Um, but uh, that's a really cool version. Uh, you know tar heavy and it's great to know that uh, brian was on there and you know organic like a lot of your stuff at that time yeah we definitely uh utilized more acoustic instruments on that one but again foundation's still there you know different drum beat than before the demo is mr electronic drum beat that was jimmy schultz uh he plays with sunflower dead right now you can go check them out uh hell of a band and really good drummer uh bobby thoughts comments again it's just cool to see the the kind of progression from where it started as a demo to the solo version and kind of the whole different life it takes on then when you go listen to the uh drown the wind version which hopefully everybody did take the chance to pause and listen to it um we'll get into the details on the the album version for drown the wind it's just interesting to me how much of a different life all of the extra instrumentation that we ended up bringing into the final version on this most recent album just it just puts a whole new light on the song sonically. Well, and that was you know it's it's not funny that you say that. That was the impetus for bringing it back again. Uh, when we were thinking of tracks for "Drown the Wind," I I have always enjoyed "Beautiful Distraction." I think it's a good song, but I never had the ability to record it the way that I heard it in my head. When we did the demos, that was like a, a Zoom portable studio. Uh, and this my little teeny garage, the second one, was another garage demo that we recorded. A guy kind of had a makeshift studio. But we didn't have the technology available to us to really make a true studio-sounding song. So when we were looking for tracks for Drown the Wind, we came up with Moving Shadows and Voyeuristic. And I talked to Lance, and I texted him. I said, hey... You know, and tell me no if you think it's it, it's crazy, but what do you think about bringing back Beautiful Distraction? And immediately, Lance says, oh, we have to, because we had played it live before, and he liked that song as well. And so because of how well Crescendo turned out, and I knew the sound that we could capture with technology the way it is today, you know, we've got quite a bit more money uh, put into the things that we have available to us it was really cool to be able to bring that song out of the archives and give it, well, really the proper touch. And the version of Beautiful Distraction on Drown the Wind is the version in my head. So as of right now, and we're still many months after the release of the album, not many, what, three, there's, there's nothing I'd change. 
You know, it's we did it. We actually recorded that version. That's in my head. I'd probably put a little more cowbell on it personally, but that's why we get along, Bobby. That's why we get along. That's that's why we don't let you make all the important decisions, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> so we began work on this song in December of 2020. So it was still early in the Drown the Wind recording process. And what I did is I I put together uh, a, a demo of the song, basically utilizing the 2005 tracks. But I put a lot more effects on things. I cleaned some stuff up using some digital technology. And that's what I sent out to the guys, you know, that they were going to use to play their parts. And so that's the reason, I mean, I'm not going to play that demo because you kind of already heard it when you heard the 2005 demo. So we don't need to rehash that. So there are about nine guitar tracks on, on the final version, the Drown the Wind version, Beautiful Distraction. And only three are mine. Now, the first one, this one that you're hearing right now, this is the original 2005 guitar line for this song. I didn't change it. I think I may have changed the reverb on it because obviously what I have access to now is a lot better. But I, I really wanted to bring in something from that original recording. So it was it was really special to me to kind of bring back that a line from 2005 and throw that in. So that so that's kind of there. It's a it's a very nostalgic feeling to me, you know. And I don't know. Well, now you guys know, so maybe you'll have a little nostalgia. Uh, second was one that I added and recorded in 2020. And this is just an arpeggiated passage that you're listening to now. And this just kind of, it fleshes out those 2005 guitars, which are a little thinner, you know, again, based on te technology. And it fleshes it out, makes it a little bit more melodic, but not quite melodic enough. And so I added this third line, which you're hearing. And this was a fun one. It's just a simple melodic lead line passage. And I wanted to have a guitar track that drove the musical theme of the entire song. And this plays throughout. And when you hear all the instrumentation together, you'll hear like this guitar line, and then you'll hear it echoed when you hear the horns come in, or you'll hear it echoed when Kevin does his part. And so that musical theme, you know, becomes the foundation of the song, and there's a lot of throwbacks to it. So while you're listening to the song, you have this familiarity with it, you know, that you may not even realize that you have. You know, and I noticed that that um, recurring line... Uh, in fact, I first noticed it when we get to the strings as I was mixing it, but as I went back and kind of was in maybe the final 10 to 20% stretch of mixing the song, I my ear finally perked up to that recurring melodic theme, and I thought it was really cool how it starts with just the guitar playing that and then more and more pieces reinforce that. Just a really cool decision. And I I've mentioned it before, especially when we talked about Voyeuristic Symphony last season, I just love those sorts of songs that just build and build and build and add more and more parts and parts like that. And when you get that reinforcement of that line that starts with just the one guitar, that's it's just so cool to hear it. Yeah, this is quintessential, you know, building West of House style type of song. And which I I mean, I guess strangely enough, I guess that's how the songs have been since 2005. That's kind of where it all started that we moved in this direction. You know, without this song, you know, is there a West of House style? You know, just thinking about it, and this is not in the notes, it's just kind of off the top of my head. Maybe Beautiful Distraction is the the supernova, the Big Bang, if you will, that led to West of House. 
And it's funny for me coming from the other direction, having heard the other songs first, I always looked at this as sort of an echo after Voyeuristic Symphony. They have similar structures, especially with the strings and orchestral uh, additions. But now that I actually like think about it, it, it's clicking with the whole, it makes more sense that Voyeuristic Symphony was actually the echo that came after Beautiful Distraction. Again, just a fun little thing off the top of my head that I'm noticing as we're talking about this. Uh, going back to what Eric said about, is this the the beginning of West of House? That's really interesting to think because, you know, we can't read Eric's mind and we don't know where he was in his head at that time. But he just told us that this is kind of the beginning of a new writing. I don't know if style is the right word, but a new way of writing songs after the God Complex days. So that's, um, you know, it's pretty heavy. It takes a lot of brain power for me to consider all of that. <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, don't, don't I, hurt yourself. That, you know. <laughs> I mean, you, like he said, you have to wonder, would West to House be here without Beautiful Distraction now? It's a wild one. It, it just, yeah, it's kind of tripping me out. <laughs> the, wor- the world will never know, or some alternate universe knows. <laughs> I will mess with time. <laughs> There's a multiverse where beautiful distraction doesn't uh, exist, and I just go full speed metal. I'm probably still your mixing engineer in that world. You, well, you're probably in that band. Also, I'd that. like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like it's been talked about before. Shh, quiet, quiet. Don't say anything. So I know that there are more tracks than the three you've just mentioned. And we had another guitar player in Westhouse able to contribute that. Eric, talk about those. Well, that would be Mr. Kevin. And we miss Kevin. I, I hope he actually comes on the podcast again. He's busy with that just gorgeous little baby his little boy is. It's some, really something to behold. Cute kid. Uh, so Kevin threw in a bunch of tracks, too. He did about, I think, six tracks on this one. And he was actually the last to record for this, uh, for the band proper. Uh, Horns came later, but Kevin was the last in the band to record. And let's kind of, you know, Bobby, in, in your magicalness, uh, please put together a stem mix of all his guitars mixed together. Mm-hmm. Boom, done. done. And that's what we're listening to right now. And you see, this is, uh, Bobby and I were talking about before we started uh, the show, you know, Kevin is the master of colored guitar. And that's exactly what you're listening to in the dictionary. Under color guitar, this is the audio representation what you're hearing and it it fills everything it doesn't step on toes it doesn't get in the way but without it it would sound well obviously it would sound differently but without it it would be a completely different song in my mind I would say I don't know how he does that, and even uh, you, other guys who play guitars like that is you have so many options from which to choose when you're putting together a part. I mean, people look at my giant drum set and say, "Holy cow, how do you play that?" But I really don't feel I have as many options as you guys do, and I'm thankful for that because I know how much time I spend putting together my part. I can't imagine what Kevin has to go through with all the different things he can play and all the different. Uh, 
uh, notes, you know, am I going to play this note here, here, or here on the fretboard, you know, what octave, or is it going to be a seventh, am I going to throw some weird in there, or not, it's just, it's really amazing what he comes up with and how it seems to always fit just right. Well, it's very magical, Tommy. You see when a person and a guitar love each other very much, uh, they, they become close. And, just the birds in the And this talk. is what happens. This, this is what comes out. And that is the that is the musical equivalent of the birds and the bees. This is go. the picks and the strings. I just I, I just think that's amazing how string players can do that. And, you know, I don't even know how you do it, but man, awe. Well, we're not string players, Tommy. We are guitarists. That means technically, we're percussion players. Same. Uh, I won't. Uh pretend that I can speak for Kevin directly, but, you know, having done similar things on West of House songs and other songs, as far as, uh, quote unquote, color guitar, um, I, I will say that when I approach it anyway, what I'm looking for is either something that does sort of an answer to something that's already there. So if there's a vocal line and then I can like answer that with a lead line, that's sometimes part of it. Um, if you're looking at what Eric laid down as a bed of guitars, you're probably considering, okay, like this is holding it down and this is the foundation. What can I add that's in between those guitars and the lead vocal that it won't get in the way of the lead vocal and distract from it unbeautifully, but will still enhance the song in, in a melodic way and add some interesting color. It's, I think part of it's just kind of an intuitive thing. And again, I, I can't speak for Kevin, but I have to assume there's an intuition there. He's just so good at it whenever i hear his parts come in on a westerhouse song they're just so identifiable so he's a warlock yeah that's that's the only reasonable explanation he is definitely a warlock what's cool to me is if you actually listen to the individual tracks uh that kevin played they're actually fairly similar to each other but some of them are in different octaves um some of them are playing different extensions of chords and it's kind of building to one or two, what sounds like one or two giant guitar tracks instead of six individual tracks. And again, that's just sort of the orchestration of guitar sort of thing that once again has become the West of House sound. So it really is like the ultimate West of House song as far as the sonics. It is the quintessential, this is what this band sounds like song. So on the six individual tracks, is Kevin track each string separately? Is that... What no. are you talking about? <laughs> Shut up, Tom. <laughs> God, that was that was the worst dad joke of all dad jokes. You know, oh. actually, I've I've seen that done. I've never done it myself, but I've seen it done where somebody, particularly on an acoustic guitar line that's like an arpeggiated clean thing, they'll record one string at a time so that you don't hear the noise of the fingers moving around changing chords and stuff like that. I, it's it sounds like more work than it's worth to me, but it's not unheard of. That having all been said, yeah, shut up, Tommy. <laughs> we talked about that actually last season, and I don't know if you were on that episode when I talked about uh, a very famous band that did that for just an overly produced album. I don't know that I was on that episode. I feel like I'd remember that. That was Megadeth. Megadeth. I have heard During that. During Countdown to Extinction. Yeah, I've heard that. They would... They would uh, Recording single strings, uh, tuning every string before, uh, I mean, micro tunes. It was, it was insane using, I don't know, musical calipers. 
yeah. to get within less of 0.01 of a percent. It was, it was just craziness. They talk about it now of how they went over the top, but they went just full technical production, crazy insanity. Yep. Took like a year and a half or something. I, I would, I would lose my mind. I would lose my ever loving mind. <laughs> well, I guess the last thing I'll, I'll say on the guitars before we move on to the bass is that, um, interesting to me, usually the guitars all come printed with any sort of reverb or delay baked into them. Uh, so I'll get the audio and it already has an echo on it. But what I like to do is throw additional echoes on those tracks because I can control if I put, as an example, one guitar in the left channel, but then I can throw the echo of that guitar into the other, into the right speaker. And you get this widening effect. So typically that's what I do is I'll throw echoes in the opposite speakers. I actually ended up not doing that on Beautiful Distraction, which is interesting for me because I usually do that. The only echo or delay I put on any of the guitars that wasn't already baked in was on one of Eric's tracks just to give it a little extra width. Everything else you're hearing was already baked into the tracks, and that includes the 2005 versions of those tracks. So so you're basically saying there were no echoes down the road. I- <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Eric. That was Thank the you. worst dad joke. <laughs> uh, I see your joke, Tommy, and I raise you. <laughs> This is why we can't be on the same podcast. Oh, I had that one in my pocket just waiting to be pulled out. That was that was horrible. Well done. I am disappointed and proud of you at the same time. Uh, uh, speaking of things that are just completely inappropriate and lame, let's talk about bass. <laughs> <laughs> Since, hey, Lance isn't here, so we could say whatever we want. Lance, right. you want to um, talk about I'll- the bass right now? No? Okay, we'll cover you. I got it. I got it. Uh, so there was bass. Anyway, let's talk about drums. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tommy doesn't know. Tommy doesn't know. Oh, <laughs> did you play actually drums have to on listen to the other episodes? <laughs> no, we've. Uh, <laughs> well, when you you're listen, just gonna, to, no, you're just gonna have to listen, Tommy. Yeah, you're gonna have to listen. You're to gonna the have other to episodes. actually listen to the podcast. <laughs> so you should probably go back a few episodes. So regarding oh, the bass, I. I I genuinely don't actually have much to say here, and maybe Lance would have something to say as far as writing the parts uh, that he wrote. But it really is like the purest bass playing as far as just holding it down, just playing the foundation. Uh, Throughout most of the song, he's just playing quarter notes. It's kind of helping uh, propel the rhythm of it because it is a slower song. Uh, It is giving a a little bit more energy instead of just playing like on the last song where he just hold a note for a whole measure or two measures. He is playing a little bit more, more notes at a time, but it's not a busy part. It's not all over the place. It's just holding one note and then moving to the other note. So again, just exactly what the song needed, which is uh, credit to Lance, just the the thing he is best at for sure, giving it exactly what it needs. Well, it's strange. I mean, obviously, you know, we're listening to to the bass now if you didn't know what that instrument was. Uh, and it's, it's always a little weird when you just play the bass because you really only have access. I mean, you can play chords, you know, sometimes the song calls for it, but you really only have access to, to that note and then another note and then another one. And there's a just a special kind of genius that goes to bass playing that even as a guitarist, when I pick up a bass, it's not the same thing as when a bass player plays bass. You know, a guitarist, we make fun of bass players all the time because they got two less strings. 
but but the, it's a completely different style of making music and where the guitar is usually in the forefront or foundational uh the bass is, is a it's a different monster whether you're locking it down or whether you do more of a lyrical melodic approach like lance does on a lot of our stuff which is another foundational uh tenet of west of house songs is lance's style of playing and which is why it's it's greatly appreciated what he brings to the table i'm sure lance would tell us that he took one take to do this too i'm sure he would say that I, if I remember correctly, I think it was one take. <laughs> uh, no, actually, he, this I, is... I think it was two. I was just looking at the session. I think he punched in at the very end of the song for the outro. Oh, what a jerk. He probably missed one chord. Probably. <laughs> or, or actually, you know what? Going back, I think I may have changed where the downbeat was from the original. <laughs> so he was familiar with this song. And then we, we did change, I think, at the end, that final chord where it actually uh, resolves. The older versions that I think Lance was familiar with, we did not end on a downbeat, but recording a proper song, what we did is we changed it, and yeah, he did have to punch that in and wasted a whole nother three seconds of home studio time. Well, and he probably double-tracked it, too. <laughs> I don't even want to go down that road. <laughs> we made fun of him so much last episode that... <laughs> so we got guitars, we got bass. Uh, if Tommy were here, we'd talk about drums... Hey, so hey, I get hey, 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 oh, here. oh I forgot I forgot oh. my bad you can tell why I'm I'm used to you being gone but you know Tommy hey why don't you tell us about the drums I will um, this song allowed me to record a beat that I have wanted to record for probably since the mid 90s I was in a band with my brother and the guy before me put a beat into a song and I'd never heard it before because I was pretty young back then and it was really cool and I've always wanted to record it. I play it all the time live, but it's the beat that's in the chorus with the ride cymbal on the downbeat and the hi-hat on the upbeat, giving you the eighth note pattern back and forth. I really dig that sound, and it just happened to fit here with the uh, tom on the B4. Like Lance, I played a pretty mellow, chill beat that fit the song perfectly. And uh, I think it, it just worked out really well. And uh, I like the way it feels. I like the toms on the four every so often, just to give it a little different feel, since the song is so slow and so simple. Just moving that one beat somewhere else just makes it a little more exciting, but it doesn't really change the feel or the beat at all. And... Um, yeah, that's about all I have for this one. And this song actually was one of my two favorite songs on the whole album. One of my favorite things to do with, um, and we talked about this a little bit the last episode, is the the slower the song, the more you can get away with uh, longer and louder reverb tails. You can hear the reverb tails on the drums just go on forever. It's 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 kind of an '80s throwback thing almost. There's just a ton of echo and reverb on there. And that's, uh, that's always fun for me. Just, um, the other thing I want to mention that we did after the fact, um, Eric and I were going back and forth on the intro to this song for a bit. I believe it originally started with just Tommy playing the drum beat straight, the, the kick snare, kick, kick snare pattern. Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah. It was, what happened was when I recorded it, so I have my recording set up behind me. So I hit the button to start it. 
then I sat down and then I started playing before the song came in just because it was going and I figured if we wanted it, we keep it. If we didn't want it, we can cut it out. But yeah, I started on snare and then I added the hi-hat and then the bass drum. It just kind of fell into place. It didn't just start like, you know, normally songs do. And we ended up keeping that, but then uh, you did some digital magic to it to make it sound like it does on the CD. You know, it's interesting because I, when I gave you the demo, the demo started with just drums and that wasn't an artistic, you know, idea. That was because I, I didn't know how to turn the drums off at the time. <laughs> so the drums just started playing. As again, this is 2005. I didn't know anything about recording and now I know barely anything. But the interesting thing you did, and at first it, it killed my soul, but then I came around and started really liking it. And this is this is minutia. We're, we're diving into minutia here. So, so the the demo because again my of my limited skills, it's you know do ka do ka you know bass drum snare bass drum snare. Now Tommy because he has to overplay even the simplest things. Tommy <laughs> gives us do ka do do ka do ka. Do do ka. So he does he does the double bass thing. You know, he does it, throws in another kick. And the first time I heard him, like, damn it, Tommy, why can't you just play what I give you? You know, not realizing that, well, A, Tommy actually has talent. So he should not be handcuffed to my poor drum programming skills. But again, I I love it now. Uh the the, the kick that you put in. It's it's very simple, that one extra kick. But it was just funny how that one little thing completely changed the complexion of the song for me. Uh, so as far as that intro, it was originally just the drum, you know, kick snare, and then the hat would come in. What we ended up doing, Eric and I were going back and forth for, what did that take? Like four or five revisions before we... It was a few. Uh, so it started with just Tommy's drum part. Eric and I went back and forth like four or five times trying to do something to the intro. As cool as Tommy's part was, and it's kind of cool to hear that it was almost a happy accident. Um what we ended up doing was trying to build this sort of ethereal kind of starts out almost like a ghost of itself sound with the drums. And then it morphs into the drums proper. And what we ended up with is what you of course hear on the drown the wind record. And how we did that was I took a section of Tommy's playing and it might not have even been that actual intro. I think it was like a couple bars later into the verse and I bounced out like, I think two bars worth of that copied it over. So I just had a stereo set of the drums for like two bars. I reversed it and threw a whole mess of reverb on it. And then you get this sort of slow crossfade between this reverse heavily echoed, weird, not quite sounding like drums, drum part. And then it fades into what Tommy actually played on the intro. And then the song kicks in. And that was just super fun, but it took us like four or five times until what Eric was saying and what I was hearing finally lined up and it clicked for me like, oh, oh, that's what he wants. Okay, I get it now. So, and Eric and I have those moments all the time. Yeah, we sometimes we're speaking two different languages and to be fair, no one speaks. <laughs> sometimes what the notes that I send Bobby, they are sometimes so out of left field that I'm amazed when he even gets in the ballpark of... <laughs> 
<laughs> of what I was thinking, but he does. It's it's strange. It's kind of frightening. I don't right? know if we've mentioned it on the podcast, but Eric and I are of one mind at this point. Our minds have melded, and we know what the other is thinking. Stop thinking about pizza. You can get some later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, do you guys know the real reason why I wanted the intro to be like that? I I might have known it like. I might have known it back then, but it's gone from the brains now. I, I thought it was because American starts with the drum thing, and you didn't want two songs to do that. Jesus, Tommy, spot on. <laughs> spot on. Not even in the notes, people. He Remember Lance and the pop quiz, how he messed that up? Tommy just did the opposite. Grand slam, Tommy, to stick with the baseball metaphors. That is exactly why. American starts with those kick-ass drums. And then you've got uh, Sunshine Girl. And then the very next song, I didn't want them to start with, with drums. So we did the weird thing. Good job, Tommy. Proud of you, man. Yeah, thank you. I know I'll remember, because I was probably traumatized that you wanted to change my part, and I'll probably never forget. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's scarred into your psyche. Three months after the albums come out, he still like wakes up in a cold sweat <laughs> at three in the morning. He changed my part. The intro, it well, sounds great, but he still changed it. <laughs> Well, speaking about things that that were changed, let's talk about vocals. Uh, so there's a lot of vocal tracks on this. I think more than any other type of instrumentation, uh, the vocals went a little crazy. Bobby, do we have a number on those? I have the number for the number of vocal tracks that are in the final version of the song. There are more we'll get there. But as far as what was in the final version of the song, I have five lead vocals and 12 backing vocals for a total of 17 vocal tracks in the final version that you hear on Drown the Wind. So there's 17 that we used. Yeah, um, and we'll, we'll get into <laughs> what happened to the other ones in a little bit here. But Yeah, it's uh, there was a lot. There's a lot going on in that song. There's a, we did some doubling and some tripling, and there's whisper tracks, and there's lots of ooze, and then I do these real high bono pops at the end, you know, totally an homage. And I wanted to do with the vocals kind of what we did with the guitars. It's about layer upon layer upon layer. There's some, are there some 2005 BGVs in there too? Uh, I think we did end up using those uh, from the 2005. Some of the ooze maybe? Yeah. I, th uh, I don't think that, I don't think we tripled the lead in for 2005. Um, so you gave me a 2005 lead uh, when we first started off on the song. I don't remember offhand and I can't pull it up as we're recording this to double check if it made it in there or not. If it did, it's kind of low and it's more of just a, an Easter egg if your ear happens to catch it. But I genuinely don't remember if it's in the final version of the song. Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't know. Maybe it's like, you know, Rick and Morty. Rick doesn't know if Beth is his real daughter or the clone. This is, these are the things that will keep us up night. But so, so well, I think we finished in May. I finished the tracking for this and gave it to Bobby. He mixed it together and Beautiful Distraction was done. But just like 2005 and just like 2013, something wasn't sitting right with me. And, but thankfully this time it was something that we could fix. Uh, going back to those older ones, that's a stem you're not going to get because it gets burned into the archives. We talked in earlier episodes about about my allergies and what happens during that time. When I recorded the vocals for Beautiful Distraction, it was a bad part of the season. And I can literally hear that in every note of that song. 
So in August, right before we were done with everything, I go back in the studio and I actually re-recorded the vocals to three songs in one day. And I, I, I sent a message to Bobby and I said, Hey, uh, yeah, this is all a bunch of crap. So here's all the new vocals. And that's not, that's a lot of singing when you're tracking vocals because you don't just track one part. So I don't know how many tracks that was in that day, maybe 25, 30, 35, I'm not going to talk about what the other two songs are. We'll get to those in those episodes. But so what what were your thoughts, Bobby? You know, when you wake up and you get a messenger, you know, message from me saying, hey, uh, let's go back. Uh, Cool. Let's do it. (laughs) I mean, like, honestly, from my part, for from a technical standpoint, the process of putting your new vocals in is really not that hard. Um, If anybody's worked in a DAW, an audio recording piece of software, um, we have the song set to a metronome and the, the whole session in the software is set to that metronome. And so when Eric re-records a vocal, I just create a new track for each vocal track, mute the originals, copy the settings over from the originals, drop the new audio into those new tracks, and then tweak, you know, the settings on any plugins, EQ, compression, uh, you know, to better suit what was given to me, which needs to happen especially if you're going from a really nasally uh, seasonal allergy affected voice with a lot of nose on it to something a little bit more open and clear, which was what you gave me. It was much more clear and you didn't sound stuffy, you didn't sound stuck in your sinuses. And so that does mean that some settings have to change, but it's not like I have to completely remix the whole thing from scratch. It was a pretty easy drag and drop and then make a couple tweaks and we were good to go. Drag and drop, new band name. Uh, but also I gave you tracks and, you know, to get into some nerd stuff, they were also recorded on a different microphone. Oh, that's right. I so, forgot about uh, that. Yeah. So, so there's definitely some tonal differences there. The first vocals were done on a, uh, GXL 3000 and these I did on the SM 7B, right. which is, you know, on my normal podcast mic, but I wanted a certain type of, of deeper sound on this. And that, I mean, that tracks now that I'm thinking about it, because I do remember vaguely having to get a little bit brighter with your voice. Um, the SM7B is a very rich, awesome mic, $350 from Sure. It was used on um, countless records, probably the most famous of which is Thriller by Michael Jackson. That was Michael Jackson's vocal mic on that album. And when you go from uh, the GXL, which is a large diaphragm condenser and has a very open bright but not harsh, but just almost, I would call it a very honest sound. To the SM7B, which is more rich, but doesn't quite have that brightness, you do have to adjust for that. 
when I mix vocals, I tend to mix them pretty bright so that they cut through the mix, especially when you're dealing with as dense a mix as Beautiful Distraction was. You want that vocal to be able to stand out on top. And I do remember cranking a lot of high end into your re-recorded tracks compared to the original tracks because you changed mics. I'm, I'm glad I could do that for you. I'm a little sad it you know, didn't make you work a little harder. But, <laughs> you know, the good thing was the, and I've, I've told you guys, you know, a hundred times off air, the opportunity to go back and fix things you're not happy with. That is one of the best things about recording an album the way we record with recording in home studios. Because when you're recording at Sunset Sound and it's, you know, 90 bucks an hour, uh, you get what you get because you can't afford to go back and fix stuff. But just having the ability to go back and do that made me very happy. Otherwise, listening to Drown the Wind, if I hadn't re-recorded those vocals, I think it would still, it would bother me every time I, I spun that. Yeah, I know for me, I have to agree with that because sometimes since we're not in a band that plays all the time, we have to come up with parts almost on the fly and right now. And sometimes that's just not there. Or you try to record and you just can't get it right. You need to step away for a day or half a day or something. And to be able to do that because you have a home studio really takes a lot of stress off. Then if you go somewhere and you're paying a ton of money and you're just not getting it right and you just can't get it and it's just not working that day, too bad. You have to make that happen. And so recording at home certainly helps in that case as well. You know what adds to stress though is when you don't you know, take a day, you take like, Nine weeks. Well, we got it done. What are you talking about? <laughs> so vocals are done and the song's completed. No, not even remotely, because here comes the really fun part. This is what I call, you know, kid in the candy store stuff. This is where all the things that were in the head that I could never do before, we got to do. And that was the orchestration for the song. Beautiful Distraction lends itself to orchestration. If you listen to it, even without, you know, the strings and the horns, you hear it in your head. It's just the way the song is built. And we were able to do that, which is awesome. So first, we called up uh, Stephen Schumann, who is our longtime cellist. He played on Chasing After Memories. He played on Voyeuristic Symphony. Uh, and so it was a no-brainer to call him for this one. And what you're hearing right now, these are Stephen's cello tracks. He just has that that beautiful sound. What he's able to do with that instrument is always perfect, and it completely fits the song. And then uh, let's play a little bit of his solo for Beautiful Distraction right now.
So, you know, the guy's a stud. He's got absolute chops. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier, um, it would be really difficult for you to have done that sort of thing in 2005, given the technology of the day versus what we have now. Uh, We can record Stephen, or Stephen, I should say, can record his parts and send them to us and send them to you, Eric, in California. And then Tommy sends his drum parts from Utah and I get them in Wyoming to mix and you know, that was just unheard of back in 2005. So I really think Beautiful Distraction needed to wait until, you know, this current era of recording and being able to send large files around with ease uh, to, for it to be able to happen. And the strings are a part of that. We couldn't have done that without being able to have Stephen record his parts remotely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, just even from just a financial standpoint, it's something that would be impossible. Uh, now to get freelance musicians and put them, have them play something for your album, it's a lot more reasonable. And also when you split it between five dudes in a band, uh, the the amount of talent you get for what you pay, it's it's almost unfair. I mean, it really is. And that's coming from the guys who pay for it. It's it's unfair what we get and how good these people are. You know, and and moving on to something, you know, even cooler, something that we had never done before, horns, man. We brought in horns. Uh, two guys, they have to be named because they both did a fantastic job. Uh, Will Allen and James Hodson. And these two guys, I mean, they nailed it. On this song, we have four French horn parts, five trombone parts, two trumpet parts, and my most favorite thing to say, four flugelhorn parts. Flugelhorn. It's a flugelhorn. And the flugelhorn idea came from Will when we were talking about it. He listened to the song and he said, I know exactly what you want. Because what I did is I talked to these guys and I said, the sound I'm going for, and I wish I could play a clip, but copyright uh, issues prohibit me from doing so. There's a song by the Cranberries called You and Me. And there's a horn theme throughout that song that is, it's my favorite in all of recorded music. And I wanted that sound for Beautiful Distraction. So after I sent him that clip, uh, Will says, this is a... A flugelhorn. You need a flugelhorn for this sound. And of course, we got it, which really, I was overjoyed uh, hearing these. And it was fun because I, I don't write, uh, you, know, you know, horn score or whatever it's known as in the, in the industry, but I can, I can sing lines. And so I sang the lines that I wanted these guys to play. And they nailed it. These guys were so professional. They took my stupid little hummings and singings and whatever I was doing and turned it into this. And this is another part where, Bobby, I want you to use your magic. I want you to throw all these horns together and let's play a beautiful stem of all the horns right now. Now, I mean, come on. How good does that sound? There is a majesty to that, and I think that's just what I associate horns, especially trumpets and flugel horns. It's just a fun word to say. I was going to say, that needed to be there at the end, too, because 
And, and maybe the end is longer than it was supposed to be because that part is so good. But the end seems would it seems like to me the end would have been feeling kind of long without all those neat parts in there if we would have just done West of House stuff and not had the horns and the cello in there. But then again, maybe Eric made the end longer because of that. We don't know. Well, you you do know because I'll tell you right now. Yes. That's exactly why it is the length it is. So the whole purpose of that, uh, when we recorded it for the Drown the Wind version, was I wanted to build that theme at the end. And that's why the horns are doing something a little different. And so they go three times through that progression. And the last one's my favorite because that's when I, I asked them to bring in the trumpets and hit that high theme for it. And oh my gosh, it just nailed it. And But the funniest part, the part that I got the most enjoyment about I booked the horns players and I didn't tell the band. No, you didn't. <laughs> I didn't tell them a damn. I didn't, I didn't tell them a damn thing. And I mixed it in myself into the demo. You know that I give to Bobby the reference and I gave it to the guys to listen to not. No, I take it back. One person caught the horns. Lance didn't catch it. Dave didn't catch it. And Tommy sure as hell didn't catch it. So you can guess Kevin texted me. He's all, dude, the horns are awesome. None of the other guys realized that there were horns in that song. <laughs> you have been called out, Tommy. I would call out Lance if he were here. But you listened to that song mixed with horns and didn't even know they were there. And they were mixed wait, loud. Wait, because I didn't say anything doesn't mean I didn't know they were there. No, 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 no. <laughs> First time using horns in a West of House song, you would have said something if you had noticed. No, I don't know. <laughs> you Nope, you failed. Failed miserably. <sighs> Bobby knew. Well, yeah, because I, I had the tracks <laughs> and they had me freaking like cross-eyed when I saw how many tracks we were, we were dealing with. <laughs> I was like, oh, what am I going to do with all this? Well, why don't, why don't you tell us, good sir, what you did with oh, all man. that? So I'd mixed uh, cello before in West of House and in other projects I've worked on. Um, so I, I'm used to dealing with stringed instruments like that. Horns are a little bit foreign to me. Um but I kind of approached it with like, okay, what is it about horns that give them that sound and especially brass and then balancing that with what they're actually contributing to the song. And the word that's coming to my mind, if we're going to do a $3 word every episode, it's gravitas. And so what I ended up doing, there's, there's panning all over the place. The horns are really wide. I wanted them to sound massive um, without getting in the way of the rest of the actual West of house band and it's just a matter of balancing that sort of brassy brightness with the actual note. And they were, I have to say, incredibly well recorded as well. Um, so that made my job a lot easier. But yeah, just panning them around the stereo spectrum, kind of halfway between some sort of hyper real, hard panning sort of thing where everything's left and right and trying to imagine where they would be in a chamber orchestra on a stage playing in front of an audience. So kind of a hybrid between those two. It's like taking what they, where they would be on a stage and making it more so, making it almost surround you, like you're standing in the middle of them instead of in the audience. Um, and yeah, and then I think we may have gone back and forth a little bit on the volume as far as balancing. Are they way louder than the guitars, drums, and bass? Are they more kind of blended in? Um, but I think we got that one pretty well set after the second or third revision. Uh, everything else was pretty bog standard, just finding the right balance between all the instrument parts. 
And speaking of all the instrument parts and the vocal parts, I have a breakdown of how many tracks we ended up with in this song. Ooh, this should be exciting. Yeah. So um, depending on who you ask, there's either 16 or one drum track. There's one drum track. <laughs> Are there 16? I didn't think I did that, man. I think I only hit two or three different you drums. Hit, but you I hit a not. ton of toms, and you had just added your third room mic, I think. Oh, <laughs> So 16 drum tracks, uh, we're going to count the, uh, or rather we're not going to count the reversed drum intro thing, um, because that was created after the fact. So 16 drum tracks, one bass track. Uh, I have 10 guitar tracks. You mentioned nine. I think we did a left, right pair on one of them. So I'm going to say 10 guitar tracks, two synthesizer tracks. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. I forgot I played. Yeah, there's kind of a synthy (laughs) organ sort of thing in there. Uh, so two synth tracks and then the five cello tracks, four French horns, three uh, turtle doves, two French hens, uh, five trombones, <laughs> two trumpets, four flugel horns, five lead vocals, 12 backing vocals for a total of Tommy, give me a drum roll. 66 tracks total. Oh. 66. It's it's no voyeuristic symphony, but it's pretty good. It's up and there. Whenever, wow. you know, it's funny. When I get those tracks to mix, you know, depending on the song, some of them have fewer tracks and they're pretty, you know, straightforward rock tunes. They might have four to six guitars and maybe four or five vocals. When I get something like Beautiful Distraction and I get, the way we do it is we share a Google Drive folder to me and the rest of the band with all of the tracks. And there's a folder for drums where Tommy drops his individual parts in. And then below that is all the other parts that Eric has bounced out of his DAW recording software. And every time I open the folder, as soon as I get the, hey, Westerhouse shared a new folder with you for a song to mix, I kind of flinch to see what it's going to be, just kind of instinctively. (laughs) And so I open, and I'll open something like Entwine. I'll be like, oh, it's, it's a bunch of guitars. I can handle 30 guitar tracks. And I open Beautiful Distraction, and I'm saying, okay, bass, guitar, 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 like eight, 10, whatever we ended up with, guitar tracks, synths, and then cellos. I was like, okay, we did cellos on Beautiful Distraction. I can mix cellos. And then I'm seeing French horns and trombones and f- trumpets and flugel horns, and then all the vocal tracks. And I'm like, before I even pull anything into my session, I'm like, how in the hell am I going to fit all of this into a song? But then as I start pulling them in and... I can I get a visual representation of what's making noise and what isn't and where I start to realize that oh it's a build it's just building up to where at the end we have all these parts playing together but starting off it's pretty stripped down and bare bones and then it starts to make sense and then I start to mix it and I I reference the demo that Eric's given me and I can get an idea uh, I'm sure by his own admission Eric is not a mixer Uh, But I can at least listen to what he's given me and understand what he's going for. The balances that he sets there, how loud or quiet the different parts are, really inform me as to what direction to take it. And I'd say for the most part, we get there 70 to 80% of the way there on that first mix. And then everything after that is refinement. So, Yeah, that's pretty spot on. And I I am not a mixer, (laughs) but I can't do everything, man. 
I just can't. I, I, you know, part of me there, there was a time when we started recording the West of House stuff. I got some, you know, things to read about mixing and mastering, and I considered trying to go down the road, and then I said no. I remember <laughs> it's, that. It's a world I don't want to live in because I want to create the music, and then thankfully, I have the privilege of handing that off to Bobby, who does things that would take me years to even, you know, become a crappy shadow of what he does. And so just from pure time management standpoint, the way we do it right now, it's, it's wonderful. It's the way it should be done. And I will never so help me <laughs> dive into mixing and mastering. Cause I, I want no part of it. Yeah. He definitely, I can, I can vouch for that comment. He did think about mixing when we were first doing yesterday's on the last album. And we didn't get too far with that. Thankfully. No, I I didn't mull it over that long. It was like a week, a week long bad idea. Three different tries, and then we're like, maybe we should hire someone. (laughs) Which that was Eric's idea. We came up with worse ideas, like, hey, maybe we should do a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Can mix that. (laughs) No, but speaking so speaking of things that are that are simple though, let's talk about the lyrics, and and that's that's not a you know self deprecating comment. You know these are. They're, well, to me, they're pretty straightforward and simple. What do you guys think? I mean, if first of all, yeah, they're dead simple. Um, it's it's kind of interesting to me, knowing the other lyrics to the other songs, you didn't go so heavy-handed on the metaphor. It's It's kind of direct, and it just is what it is, at least in my interpretation. It seems to me like a love song, just a straight-ahead love song. I didn't know that Eric was so sensitive back then. He's written a lot of love songs in his career. And sometimes you know they are, and sometimes you don't know they are. And this is uh, more so you know it, but maybe not. Because there's words like (laughs) killed and blood in there. So you don't know. It could be a love song from Eric. It could not be. So... (laughs) The way you say it, you may, you just made this song sound so violent. If someone's not familiar, they're like, what the hell? Killed in blood? This is why, listener, Brain, dear listener, you need to take the time that we carved out for you to pause and listen to the song before we talk about it. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to think this is, you know, a grindcore, like, like a cannibal corpse song or something. Uh, but, I mean, Bobby is right. Uh not a lot of metaphor, and I, I write with a lot of metaphor usually. Uh, this one's very straightforward. Uh, there's some, you know, number significance in it, you know, referring to 33 and 60. <coughs> I like to do things. Uh, I'm not into numerology and, and all that stuff, but, but I do like this. Well, I guess there is some symbolism. I do like the symbolic nature uh, of numbers and what they, what they seem to mean. Uh, there's a lot of alliterative wordplay. Uh, throughout this, throughout the song, and so so this is interesting, and I don't know if you guys caught it, but so look at verse one and two. If you look closely, because these guys, I've given the lyrics to the guys right now, and you know with punctuation, verse one and two is all one sentence. Would you look at that? So and but what it, when you hear it, when you hear the song. It's broken up into eight distinct phrases, and that goes over two verses, even though it's one sentence that runs throughout that whole thing. 
So if you were to speak it, you know, like in a conversation, it's 33 miles through the night, comma, waiting for a sign that you are more than a picture in my mind, more than just a breath taken in a melancholic dance with the God who killed romance because it was nothing more than a beautiful distraction. That's all one thought, but it's a really fun lyric writing technique. Uh, and what it does to break it up like that, and we do this in a lot of songs. Uh, Yesterday's is probably the big one in the chorus to that, where it's one thought, but it's broken up in a way that you hear different things. And what this allows the listener to do, it kind of allows the listener to hear what they want, to to bring out the thoughts that kind of stick in their mind. And in doing so, it opens the song up to more than one interpretations, to where the person listening can ascribe different meanings uh, throughout multiple times that, you know, that they spend the track. And it, it's fun to do as a writer. I, I assume it's fun to do as a listener because I do it. I don't know if you guys listen to music that way at all. You know, the, the one sentence thing is interesting to me because you just made the song make sense to me. Uh, I remember when I was mixing it and listening to it, um, the starting the second verse with taken in a melancholic dance. It kind of tripped me up. I'm I'm not an English major, but I am a, a fan of literature and reading, and I like to think I'm uh, fairly intelligent about that sort of stuff. But I was like, why would you start a sentence at the top of a verse with taken? Now it makes sense. Now it totally clicks. Like, what was taken? Oh, the breath from the previous verse. Now I get it. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I, I get a lot of questions. Uh you know, verse three is like that. And I had someone, uh, someone at work the other day. So I walk in, I walk into reception and beautiful distractions playing, which, you know, as an artist, that's wonderful. That's a place that's, you know, away from my music life. And you hear one of my songs in, in the lobby at work, not going to tell you where it is, but it, you know, it was fun to see. And, and I remember the receptionists uh, in Apple music, the lyrics come up and they were really intrigued on verse three, which again is one sentence. It's, I'd give 60 years to breathe and I'd trade blood just to see your vision dancing in my dreams like a beautiful distraction. And the thing that tripped him up, and, you know, Tommy kind of talked about it because, you know, he's got blood on the mind, was this idea of trading blood. And before I dive into it, what comes, what comes to mind when you hear that? That you would die if you had to, to see the vision that I don't want to, the person is having in their dreams of you, what someone is dreaming about you. I've, I've got that backwards from you. I'm, I'm interpreting, I'd give 60 years to breathe and I'd trade blood just to see. I'd give up anything just to see you again. Like a beautiful distraction. It, you started on the right path, Tommy. And I, I don't know where the, the dream thing was kind of interesting. Making it the dreams of the, person talking. I will actually have to dive into that myself because that intrigues me. Uh, but on this one, you know, my thought uh, is kind of what Bobby's saying. It's a, it's a very simple way to say, oh God, I really want to see you again. But that doesn't sound that cool in a song. <laughs> you know, that's that, and that's not... I think that's been done it's, too. It's not the way. And and Tommy, Tommy is probably the best witness of this. Uh, that's not the way I speak. <laughs> You know, I don't speak in a very, you know, just straightforward. I'm going to take a very uh, lilting musical, very literary route to go get my point across. I wish I could have said that a little better right now because I sound like a 
fumbling fool right now, like a jester dancing around the court. But w- would you agree, Tommy, that I, I'm apt to use strange words that I probably don't need to use? Yeah, I would go with that for sure. <laughs> Where Tommy is, a, Tommy is a man. He's just going to say what he's thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, for sure. So that's why, that's <laughs> why we sometimes have communication issues. Like when we record, you know, Denmark calling, but you know, that's, that's a different episode and that's fine. <laughs> I, I like the, uh, and this is, I mean, anyone who's been writing songs for any period of time too uh, will get this. You, you kind of take the idea of what you want to get across and what you want to um, convey and portray and you ratchet it up to 11 to, you know, make it a more powerful statement. And I get that with, instead of just saying, oh, I'd, I'd love to see you again. You're saying I would give 60 years of my life and breath and I'd trade blood just to not even see this person in person. in you do all of that just to see them in your mind and in your dreams. And I love that just taking it and blowing it up and making it larger than life. That's classic songwriting and it's, it's textbook in the best way. This it's what others should look for and reference. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah. It's uh, when you put it like that, now I see it. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that's, that's the fun of writing songs. One of the joys is, you just get to paint things in ways that they're just larger than life. And all the colors of the palette, you know, are, are there for you. It's, it's like the reason why we go to movies, you know, and, and we have, I think every human has gone to a movie, seen like a movie about relationships or something. And then you walked up and you're like, Oh, why can't I have that? Well, that actually doesn't exist. You know, no one's actually going, I hope God, I hope, do you give 60 years of their life and, you know, trade blood just to get a memory of someone? But when we speak in the, in, the, uh, in the context of art, we're allowed to do so much more and we're allowed to paint these grandiose pictures that I, I just really find beautiful. And, you know, thank you, Bobby, for your words. That, you know, makes me happy as a lyricist. It brings joy to my cold, dead Grinch heart. <laughs> uh, you know, and then, you know, then we get to the chorus and... You know, it, it's, it's got kind of a call and response thing going on. Uh, if you cry, I'll follow. If we die, breaking our hearts along the way. If we part, I'll reach you. And then this, this thematic line, the, there's still so far to go, look up because it's a long way down. And this is just a very, very simple way to say relationships are hard, man. They're hard. They're, they're not easy. But it's, and it, again, the artist in me, it's the struggle and it's the melancholy and it's the hurt and falling down and, you know, building up again that for me, that I find beautiful, that I find worth it. This idea that everything would be happy and perfect. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I write songs, but God, that sounds so horrible to me. It would be so boring and lifeless and I, you need the passion and the pushback and the struggle because that's in the end what makes us human, what makes us mature, what makes us uh, move forward together with someone and, and have, some, have it mean something, you know, rather than sha-la-la-la, you know, the end of family ties. I, I agree. I think the, uh, the things in life worth having are the ones you have to fight for and that you have to work at. If everything were super easy, then you wouldn't want for anything. So, yeah. You know, it's just not worth it. And, you know, I'll, go, I'll take it another step. 
you know, kind of bringing it back home, uh, even in a band relationship, the dynamic in a band, when you put a bunch of artists together to work together toward a common purpose uh, to create, I, I've been a solo artist. I've been, you know, in a situation where I go, you do this, you do this, you do this, and there's no discussion or anything like that. I kind of like that we have more pushback in West of House. I like that Tommy and I will have to yell at each other. I like that, you know, there'll be this discussion over text message. And I remember when Dave joined the band, this is funny. You'll enjoy this, Tommy. So when Dave joined the band, we added him to our group text thread. Now, this was me, Tommy, Lance, and Kevin. Uh, counting the years of relationships right there, you're talking like 40 years. It's something ridiculous. And Dave jumps in, and it just happened to be a day that I think I went off on Tommy about something, uh, <laughs> which which is probably right. I mean, there's a good chance of that, right, Tommy? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. We're both passionate, and so sometimes we don't see the same way. Yeah, I, I go off on him and say, you know, like, damn it, no, we got to do this, da, 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 da. And he's yelling at me, and I'm yelling at him, and, you know, over text. Dave texts me on the side, and he says, are you guys okay? <laughs> <laughs> he was really worried about the state of our relationship. Bless his heart. He, he really cared that, you know, Tommy and I were about to break up. This is going to be the end of the band, and he just joined. And I'm like, Dave, we've known each other for like 25 years. It's totally fine, man. <laughs> well, that reminds me of the Bohemian Rhapsody where Freddie Mercury comes back into the studio and he's like, hey, I, I went into the, my own thing and I did everything. I had all these guys and told them what to do and they did it and that didn't work. And so this kind of like, you know, when I saw that the first time, I just saw that show a couple nights ago. But when I think about that part, I kind of think about this band. Like, you know, we we kind of push and prod and, you know, do our thing and we're, we're all really passionate. And so when we have changes, sometimes it takes a minute to soak that in, but I think it brings out the best in the end. I would agree. I mean, maybe I'll write a song about that dynamic on the next album. It'd be called, I don't know, four jackasses that frustrate me, <laughs> but, but I'll, I'll say it. I'll say it differently where it sounds. You cool. definitely will say it differently. <laughs> four, four jackasses that frustrate me. It's gotta be one of those parenthetical titles. The four jackasses that frustrate me parenthetical. <laughs> and I love them. What, what, what's that, that Irish saying where you're able to tell someone to go to hell and they look forward to the trip or something. That's Eric. Yep. <laughs> i never heard that before and i mean being irish i'm surprised i haven't but i love it i it's the uh, the irish charisma right you know because you know i love you something like that yeah and when i tell you to go to hell it's well one i'll probably be there waiting for you but you know that's uh that's the key of a good relationship and you know because we want to keep a good relationship with you the listener we probably shouldn't go on too much longer so let's you know cut the yakking Let's play Beautiful Distraction.
All right. So there we go. Beautiful distraction in, in all its almost six minute glory. Uh, closing thoughts, gentlemen. I mean, we've said a lot about it. All I can say is I'm, I'm glad this one's done. And I don't mean that in a, like I wanted to put it behind me, but I'm glad it's finally what it is supposed to be. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that this is one of my two favorite songs on the album. I probably wouldn't have guessed that if you would have told me beforehand or when we were recording it, hey, this is going to be one of your two favorite songs. But it turned out to be that way. And uh, it's just a really beautiful, chill song with a lot of neat parts. Yeah, so, I mean... Like I mentioned, tons of tracks. It gave me an interesting challenge, and I love being challenged intellectually and creatively. So that part of it was fun. And on the whole, as a as a song from an artist's perspective and a songwriter's perspective, it just ticks all the boxes for me. I just love everything about this song. Probably same to Tommy. It's probably one of my favorite songs on this album. So yeah, I uh, had, had fun talking about it, guys. All right, so next episode, we're going to do the final song off side A. If you had a disc, you know, and we're able to flip it, uh, which we don't, it's digital. But anyways, the final song off side A is Fall Down. And that's got a lot of interesting things. That's going to be a pretty good discussion. We've got a lot to talk about there. So we will have fun. Uh, as always, we, we thank you for joining us. And Tommy, why don't you uh, give us the bumper, take us out, do all the uh, housekeeping stuff. All right. So you need to make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You need to go ahead and hit social media. We are on Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, anywhere. If you Google West of House, you will find us. Hit all those things. Like all those things. We appreciate you more than you know. We do this out of a love for it, and uh, we hope we can just get something out that uh, someone could connect with at some level. So, said that, or that said... <laughs> We'll see you next time. Good job, Tommy. We'll see you guys. Have a good one. All right. Later. something in my chest bobby's choked up because the song is just bringing tears to his eyes when he thinks about it, it. just it just i love it so much and it just makes me feel feels <laughs> <laughs>